The Big Data Beard team loves conferences, and we want to share the love with you, our great listeners. We've partnered with Cloudera and O'Reilly Media to give you a chance to win a free pass to Stratadata Conference happening in San Francisco, March 25th to 28th. All you have to do is subscribe to our newly launched Bright Talk channel, and you'll be entered for a chance to win this free conference pass. Just search Big Data Beard Bright Talk in your favorite search engine or look for a direct link in our show notes. We'll announce the winner of this free conference pass during our first show in February. But don't worry if you don't win, you can still join us at this awesome conference and get 20% off your pass just by using our promo code PCBeard at checkout. You are now listening to the Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Hey, this is Corey Minton with the Big Data Beard. And today we're excited to have an episode and a conversation with, uh, with Paul Brook. And Paul Brook is the author of a, of a newly released book called The Life of AI. And it talks about AI today, tomorrow, and, and really in the future and what it's going to mean for humankind. And uh, we're excited to have Paul on. He's a, uh, a, an executive in IT with many years of experience, but focused really in on this burgeoning area of big data and AI in the enterprise. So, Paul, welcome to the uh, Big Data Beard. We're excited to have you on. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit, a bit about how somebody goes from working in this exciting area of technology and they get the motivation to write a book. <laughs> um, well, first, I'm going to apologize for the jazz voice, okay? So I've not been shouting at soccer games or anything. It's just the time of year, you know? Um, th- there's a kind of a weird thing. You you you. you sit around with colleagues and customers and you're talking a lot about whatever technology excites you and other things, what sport excites you, whatever. And I really remember the moment a customer called Lee sort of sat to me and said, you should write some of these presentations you do down and do them as a blog. And then we, we got chatting about a few other things and um, Lee moved to a company some of you may have heard of called Amazon. And he sent me this note going, forget the blog, you should self-publish on Amazon. And then for about eight months, we went off, because we, we, we share an enthusiasm for science fiction. We went off exchanging self-published science fiction authors for a while. And then one afternoon, we were obviously being British. You have to be sitting in a pub to have a good idea. And Lee said, no, really, seriously, you should you should self-publish on Amazon. And he, you know, by the time I'd got home, he'd sent me a link and I'm sure we all know what it's like. Once a buddy sets you a dare and he'd pretty much said, I, I know you'll never do it. That's the equivalent of going off you go. <laughs> so it was that moment of challenge accepted. Um, and we just kind of you know, kicked a few ideas around and then started writing up stuff that, that had been done previously in presentations, blogs. Uh, various conversations with some fascinating customers, a couple of which we we talk about in the book. It, it's uh, truly a privilege to be doing what I do, and it's it's great fun to write some of it down. To be honest, that's very cool. Well, you know, like any good story, it starts in the pub, as you said. Um, but, and and funny, you mentioned science fiction because candidly, 
I feel like so many people today are are talking about AI, but when they really, like if you really dig in with them about what they think AI is, it still feels very science fiction. So, you know, in the tagline for your book, you talk about, you know, what's happening in AI today and tomorrow and in the future. T- tell me a little bit about what you think is really happening, you know, in AI uh, as, it, as, it were, as it were today. Like what is really happening in AI beyond the buzzwords? What's your view of the world? You know, it, it's – I know there's a, a lot of folks will go, oh, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing the other. In the early part of the book, there's there's a lot of references to science fiction films, movies um, from the 60s, uh, TV series. We, we refer to Star Trek very specifically in that. But, but the reason for that is where we are today is a lot of the stuff that the people who thought of fiction, they, 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 they kind of put in the heads of – uh, the millennials and, and the kids who are writing the programs. Uh, and the obvious example I like is you, you cannot go to your local store now w- without the door opening for you as you walk up to it. And when Star Trek was first out, that you know that was a thing. The doors open automatically when you stand in front of them. And I think we're at that weird stage where with AI, we, we can see what we want to do. And some of the creatives are kind of riding that together. And the early days of, yeah, well, hey, we, we can make doors open when someone walks up to them. And whether we want to put in the beautiful Star Trek door opening sound, that's a whole nother thing. But um, I, I believe we're at that point where the, the, the creatives, the early adopters, the, the folks who are innovators, they're, they're the ones taking highly automated algorithms and applying that to established or well thought through processes and and delivering in that value to their organization, their business or their startup, whatever it is that they might be doing. And like just today, I was with an ambulance service that's using what most people would look at and say, no, that is artificial intelligence. What smart people who listen to big data beard podcasts would go, that's, that's kind of straightforward code that you can, you can see it in the libraries and the frameworks. All they're doing is tagging um, simple location information so that, you know, for an example, if, if, if an ambulance has a, a bunch of very skilled medics in the ambulance at the time uh, and there's a certain type of call, a sever- severity one, and, and, and that is something bad is happening, all they're doing is routing the ambulance with the smart medics in it to the call, as long as it's sensible to do that. And, and, and that sounds sort of, well, is that AI? But the machine learns from the dispatchers and starts to jump in before the dispatcher can, you know, in, in real time, pick up the call and start to think, oh, I know, you know this medic's going to be really good at that. They're trained, etc. And they've, they've began to improve their service levels. And at a simple level, yeah, that, that's helping people get better quicker. Um, yeah, but saving that, lives that I don't know. That's but what we're at that AI early feels stage. like. That's what AI feels like to me. Like what, what you said yeah. there was like it feels like it's AI in so many cases is still so human in the loop. It's it's what you refer to in your book as as AI versus autonomous AI, right? Yeah. It feels like we're just at the stage where we're starting to get some automation around tasks, but there's really not this like sentient, like autonomous AI that's doing anything really meaningful. It's very much human and loop. Do you think that's accurate? Is that what we're, we're seeing as like just basic human automation and, and adoption that way? 
It's where I see it mostly today. I mean, you're going to get the leading edge guys who are listening to this going, oh, no, Paul, we're way ahead of it. But in the book, I make the clear distinction between this is where we are today, that the the future AI will program itself. It will start from scratch and it won't be prodded by humans. At a simple level today, we're seeing AI that is heavily like you say there, Corey, heavily influenced by what the humans are putting into it in terms of the code and then what the humans are doing standing next to it, almost verifying. Um, yeah, we're, we're, it's got to be exciting because this is the point at which this, it's really taken off. It, it's, it's, I think, stepped out of the university lab and sort of stepped into the real world, which is, again, one of the reasons Lee and the crew were prodding me going, look, if you don't write this book, I will. And it, it will be better than you, Paul. I'm not having that. <laughs> maybe we could have some. Uh, maybe we could have AI write the book. I don't know. There's uh, there's been lots brilliant? of generative AI use cases in the future. That, that's that's what they say is all the rage. So then, oh, so we talked about where AI is today, right? It's it's uh, you know, there's clearly some people that are early adopters that are forward and really doing some things that are pretty impressive. The, the you said as you said, it, it feels like a lot of organizations are still just you know, get started. But what do you think is, what's, what do you think is, is in the near future? Like if you look out the next two to three years based on, you know, the organizations you talk to and, and, and the smart people that you surround yourself with in the next two to three years, what do you think are those near kind of impacts that we should expect to see AI really deliver beyond the buzz? I, it's, it's, that's a cracking question. Um, so, so, you know, doffing my cap to the sequoias of this world who I'm sure are, far closer to the, what the smarts will do. Um, w- w- the best thing about now with AI is, and uh, again, I think it's in the book, that there's, there's these three things that have come together, the commoditization of software, some of which is free. I mean, that's a pretty commodity. The, the, the hardware, everyone writes, and it's, it's fine, it's infrastructure, it's, it's relatively inexpensive, and you have the cloud as an option, rent what you use. But I think the Critical thing is just how many programmers there are in the world now, and and I I, I think um, I think that when I was doing the research for this, that you got that weird moment where there are twenty one million programmers in the world. When when I was doing the research, so it's probably about a year now. There may be twenty three million now, um, which would make it if you've got all the programmers in the world together in a city, it'd be the second largest city in the world. And I am not going to make a comment about the social life of the second largest city in the world that's full of programmers. I reckon it would be brilliant. I think it but would be pretty smelly. I, 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 I think it would be it'd rock. It'd rock. And it would be, cool. be the first city in the world that would have hoverboards in production. You know you know that. <laughs> They'd have great coffee and plenty yes, of beer. exactly. <laughs> Craft beer. You know. Great tea, not coffee, tea. Great tea, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> but I think what we're going to get is that as, you, as those programmers are drafted in to automate more and more things, I think we're going to see some really impressive decision support systems um, in clinical applications. Um, and Rafael Gomez does some amazing work with Google Glass and how he uses that as a tool to educate the next generation of clinicians. I, I really think we're going to see graduates from med school expecting to have you know, an AI on their shoulder sort of saying, look, this looks like this, this looks like this. And I think they're going to expect that. And we should, ex- we should expect and start to demand to see that. Um, I, I think as we found with the ambulance organization, 
anyone in the logistics world is going to have a, a lot of the work that is really quite dull work, simple dispatch work, simple recording work, even the work of pressing the button to say, yeah, I've arrived at the address and delivered the parcel. That will be automated, automated. And, and the big push customers bring to me and I bring to customers is don't worry about the artificial intelligent bit. Think automation. What can you automate? Boom, go do it. And that's just getting, that's really gathering a pace now. It's actually quite cool to watch it happen so quickly. Yeah. And, you know, with this continued automation and the going of automating some of these tasks, there's been a lot more talk about how AI is going to take human jobs away and that human jobs are becoming less and less. Do you see that as really being accurate? And what are your thoughts on that? Okay, this is a great question, isn't it? I'm going to go back to 21, maybe 22 million developers in the world now. Now, you guys are real young and fashionable. Whereas I, I'm a million years old, you know. Um, if, if I'd have sat in front of my school principal way back in the 70s when my football team was good um, and said, I want to be a developer, that they'd have thought I was interested in buying and selling property. That, that, that there was no such thing as programmers. It, it, and now there's 20 plus million in the world. AI is not not going to cost us jobs, even in the short term. It's going to create jobs. And they're jobs that just don't exist now. And they'll be good jobs. They will be jobs that remove drudgery. Can you imagine sort of doing the sort of job where you had to punch a card 300 times a day? Well, let the AI do that with a robot arm going punch, punch, punch. I, 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 that is the least of my worries, that the, some, someone will write software that does my job. And I, I think I, in the book, quote a friend of mine who worked down a it worked down a mine um and he his exact word that they're still with me it's an awful job not the word he used remember he was a working man it's an awful job you know and no one should have to do it and i think ai will help remove those awful jobs and start freeing us up for brilliant jobs like making tea and brewing coffee and making beard oil and craft beer and all those things that they need skill and craft and human interaction I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think it is a weird shift for a lot of people to think that they may have some part in this, even if they're not developers and that there's this shift. Um, but I'm curious because part of, part of, you know, one of the things that happens when we talk about the future of AI is it gets oftentimes jaded or dystopian. Like we get the, we have these, these Hollywood images of what AI really is going to be. But I think the short term, like <laughs> disregarding that for a second, the short term concern, I think that we've seen start to pop up into, you know, popular culture, even into if enterprises who are considering, you know, leveraging AI to automate some, you know, mundane or drudge, you know, drudgery task is how to avoid, you know, significant amounts of, of bias or, um, you know, the model doing things that, that are natural. Like there's still a lot of concern over like how confident we can be in a model driven business. Do you, th do you think that's like, is that really still a problem for us? Is, do you think there's somebody solving that problem around bias or do you think that that's maybe one of our, still one of our bigger challenges with AI adoption? I think it's one of the bigger challenges, but there's a lot of smart guys um, addressing that. And, it's interesting talking to some of the non-technical guys. Like you say, this is not all about developers. So it's a lot about developers, but not all about that. 
and you get social scientists and economists and uh, philosophy folks kind of going, hey, we should be thinking about A, B and C. And and that that's as relevant to the discussion as any technology discussion. And again, when you do research for this sort of book, it's great when there's a phrase we use in the United Kingdom that, that, that means you don't like your technology. And the, the word is Luddite. And, and Luddites were basically people who in the 1720s, 1730s, and I told you guys I was old, but believe me, not that old. But, but when Samuel Crompton invented the spinning mule, it, what he did was automated the, the, the weaving of cotton, which had previously been a cottage industry, pretty low paid and heavily reliant on, you know, horsepower and pedal power to, to spin the cotton uh, spinning machine. Um, yeah, this is the spinning machine that Sleeping Beauty pricked her finger in. You know, that this that cottage industry where you literally either push the wheel with your hand or press a pedal with your foot and it spins the wheel. Samuel Crompton did the same job with steam and it was the beginning of the industrial age. It, it created millions of new jobs, but it did remove people from that cottage industry and cause people to leave the agricultural economy that they were used to. It hit at the right time. I think we've got the same sort of thing. We, we need lots of folks to be around being aware that there's a change. But just as we've got lots of smart folks now that say, hang on a minute, before we let this machine loose on giving investment advice to these intelligent pension fund runners let's just check there's not bias in the code let's you know we know what the problems could be in the same way we know that there could be a displacement of people who drive for a living if the driverless car industry suddenly springs out of nowhere and starts doing what it promises it will do yeah being aware of the problem is half the half the way to solving it to be honest you know and there's a rambling answer to a really good question, which probably means I don't know. No, no, it's it's, it's an important question. I don't think anyone has, has solved it yet or else we probably wouldn't be asking that question. But I think it's something that everyone needs to be mindful of as we get more and more down the road of autonomous AI is mm. we can't let it perpetuate. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of you know what you were saying there. And people, is, they're obviously a very important part of this. Your book actually talks about three parts to the AI ecosystem. So people, software, and hardware. Are yeah. all three of these parts created equally? Do you think one has more importance within creating the AI of the future than the other? Ah, that's a really cool one. Um, I think as we move into the future, and I'm talking sort of 10, 15 years, um, that the hardware will change beyond recognition. And again, I think that's part of the drive to automate. Um, and my evidence for that is is kind of, what are we now, 2019? If we, if we drifted back, I don't know, 15 years, 2004, um, I'd have a hard time convincing smart guys like you that um, I, I had this thing from Apple that I held in my hand and it took pictures. And, it, and you, you remember the film, Steve Jobs, and he talks about, no, I'm going to give you a camera. I'm going to give you a new sound thing. I'm going to give you a way to talk to people. I'm going to give... In 2004, you just would be gasping if I told you what a, a, a cheap Android phone or an expensive iPhone. Hey, you know which side of the camp I'm on now. Um, and, and I think looking for the hardware, trying to look forward 15 years, that's where the struggle will be for us today to understand what what the hardware is going to look like. But I think that will become actually quite important 
because as we see the software folks saying we are going to embed AI, I don't want an annoying AI. Um, I just, if, if you're a fan of Red Dwarf, if not, look it up. Talky Toaster, the annoying toaster that is obsessed with bread products. I do not want that sort of AI in my kitchen, yeah? But I will want AI embedded in all sorts of other things. And, and that will mean the hardware's got to sort of change. J- just as we had IBM, I think it was Watson, was, has been mistakenly told, quote, m- misquoted that, that there'll only be three computers in the world. It's not exactly what he said. But I, I think our view of what a computer is will change. So the hardware piece, I think, is the one that's funnily enough most important, but not as we view it today. It will just become part of an embedded piece. The software will then run on that in a million different places, in a million different ways. And what I believe we'll see critically, if we look at even beyond 15 years, is the role of people will become more significant, which kind of sounds weird as you drive slowly towards an autonomy in your artificial intelligence. People will become more important because we'll be the governors on the steam machine. I'm convinced of that. So you talked about that hardware is going to be something different than we see it today, which I don't think is very hard to imagine for a lot of people, especially anybody that's paid attention to, you know, just if we look at processors, right? We've moved from, you know, CPUs, still very popular in many cases, especially, you know, an inference, but in training, we started to see things like GPU get kind of interesting. And then there's, you know, all sorts of innovation happening in Heck, I mean, if you look at like the, you know, Google announces TPUs that they're using privately in the cloud. And then there's this, the startup company I read the other day just got a $1.7 billion valuation for something called an IPU, which is like, is a whole new processing (laughs) framework that I'm still trying to figure out what exactly it does. But then you look at the, those are all in most cases, those are processing technologies that we typically see either run by cloud providers or, you know, run by enterprises in their data center. What's happening between the marriage between like, you know, IOT and, and AI or edge computing and AI? Cause that feels to me like one of those areas where those are two macro technology ideas that are, if they come together in a meaningful way, it feels like that may be like the area of a lot of innovation. What do you, what, what's your thought on the, the marriage of those two tech, not technology kind of macro themes? Uh, it's, it's, that's a, a fantastic. And, and, you know, gosh, if I was writing a second book, um, that might be one of the themes that we we'll hone in on. Um, and Paul, I dare you. I dare you to write I, a second oh, book. No, there you accepted. go. <laughs> we're, we're not in a pub, but I think you should, you've just yeah, been there. Be in a pub. Hey, we can figure yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, w- with the wave of data that will produce, I, I think we've got this strange situation. Now, I was talking with uh, a bunch of customers from Belgium. So it's a small country that kind of does everything from... Uh, they make aeroplane parts there to the stuff they're famous for, be that beer, of course, a big brewing business, and um, lots and lots of different things. And they were saying most of the Internet of Things examples we were talking about, they were going, but that's all business to consumer. That's all business to consumer. What about business to business? And I was saying, I think the line between those two things is going to blur, blur to the point that yeah, your business partner in the old days used to get a very different view of you as a business than what you would let your customers see. Whereas now you're kind of quite happy to expose both to the same data with you know, legal limits, etc. You don't want HR data being exposed necessarily to customers, for example. But but 
the net of that is the Internet of Things will bring in a, a whole new raft of information about information and things about things that, that will drive the automation even further. And at what point do, do, do you as a consumer sit there and go, well, I, I don't, my life is now a series of connected devices that I interact with. And, you know, maybe the big smart money will be, I'm going to write an AI that is in effect my digital twin that exists in this world of Internet of Things and in effect shields me from it. So, you know, my next Cortana, my next Siri, my next OK Google will actually be designed to stop Google interfacing with my life because I'm tired of the advert or whatever it might be. Um, now, now, that's kind of strange way to look at it, but it'll become so embedded in our lives, it'll be... I think interesting that as today we separate business technology from consumer technology, I think these two are just going to come together and it's the things that are going to bring them together. And the oil or the lubricant of that big economic machine will be the data that that generates and we as people therefore associate with. So that that's just a huge area, but I, I can yeah, see I, the I, traditions I... crashing together. You got me, you got me cracking up because I'm thinking about like, can this dystopian world of where in the future I actually need Alexa to like, fil like filter stuff that Google is sending me. Oh, yeah, and I'm, yes. and I'm literally, and I'm thinking about my email and I'm like, oh my goodness, if that were really possible today, <laughs> I'd be like the early adopter of that technology to filter the stuff I don't want to deal with in my digital <laughs> life by some other digital assistant. Like, now that's, that's like an inception thing. Like, it's just kind of brilliant, spent, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the, the Scottish science fiction author who passed away a few years ago, Ian M banks um used to have you, you know you, you carried a terminal that connected to the the planet or whatever hub great hardcore space opera but but most of the terminal's job was just to separate you from the noise of the world of the digital world which was part of your everyday experience so the only way you could coexist in a real world is by having a very very sophisticated ai you basically bat away the noise it's it's you know I'm sure big celebrities like you, Corey, you, Brett, you've got people to bat away the, the, the fans, but you'll have an AI to bat away the fans in future, I think. You know? Every day. I yeah. have to keep them off me every day. It's so hard. <laughs> if that were a real problem, it'd be phenomenal. <laughs> I like that. I, I'm, I'm going to set that little one up now. Yeah. I'm going to get my Alexa speaker. I'm going to get Siri. And I'm gonna... yeah, what's the best way to decide how to deal with this? Well, you two deal with each other. I'm, I'm going to go and play football. You know? <laughs> That's soccer, That's right? Soccer, yeah, sorry. Yeah, good point. Yes. Well made. <laughs> We're a global show. We can call it football. It's fine. So so one of the things I run into, and, and, and I'm guessing you, you deal with this from time to time, which is, you know, you, you meet people uh, at, at conferences, you know, you, you, you get invited to meetings. And, and one of the things that happens, dependent upon where an, a person is in their knowledge or journey around AI they're always looking at the future for themselves and they're always looking at like use cases. Like we always constantly hear that organizations and people want to hear like, give me an idea of how I could use like this burgeoning area of technology for a real, you know, purpose, right? Give, give me purpose, right? Because I think many people see it as like the tech is out there and, and yes, we may have, 
you know, gaps in our ability to adopt the technology. But f- for the the vast majority, it's like they just want to know where to start. So it, from, from you, like you clearly have done quite a bit of research on the landscape of these technologies. But I'm curious in the in the short term, what are the the use cases? And I know you've listed a few around, um, you know, uh, decision assistant, decision support. But like specifically, what do you think are some of the most exciting use case areas for for AI in in the near future that people could take away and go, that's a good place for me to go spend some time researching and understanding the players in that market to go start working on today. I, I it is such a very common one, and it, it's again you can almost spot the guys that get it the folks that get it from the folks that kind of think this is a buzzword bingo and they don't really want to get it they, they actually don't want to change um I, I, you know, if i was a gambling guy i know which which organization i'd put my stock on you know and, and the large organizations anything you can automate where computers do a better job than people um you're going to find an AI there already. Um, that there's a great use case for the UK tax office, and they were concerned at first about identifying tax fraud. But when they talked to their user group, what they found was that that, that fraud wasn't the real problem. It, it was genuine mistakes in trying to fill in a really complex tax form. And actually, when you look at the maths and the statistician would sit there nodding and should be going, I could have told you that, you know, something ridiculous, like 99% of all tax forms completed are pretty much the same. And and within a certain scope, you've got there's there's very narrow bandwidth of typical earnings in the United Kingdom. You know, very few outliers, obviously. You think of soccer players and that lot and entertainers and very, very wealthy business people, but they have other people fill in their tax forms. They're genuinely very accurate. So what they did was apply AI to um, not reading, that's the wrong word, but going through these forms and looking for the common errors. And then the second project was to remove those questions that generated errors from the form and replace them with a better question. And it saved them £10 million. Pounds. That's 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 almost $5, guys. I mean, sorry, we're going... The, the the pound is tanking at the moment, you know. Brexit's, Brexit's <laughs> a real pain, real pain yeah, huh? it's really hurting. <laughs> you're you're so, playing no, the no, long the game there. Is. Someone's listening to this in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, listening to this going, pound, I remember that. <laughs> Tax, I remember that. You know, I, I love that kind of government use case. I, I, I talked about the clinical use case. I think they're potentially a huge area um and controversially actually most clinicians are incredibly conservative for for all the right reasons you know um so i I think the adoption of that kind of clinical decision support while, while it's a really really great use case might take a bit longer than people would expect where i think it'll have its biggest impact is you know when you move out to areas of heavy population um, places like India, places like China, w- where you can start to automate the, the, the simple decisions that people need to make. And it, again, I think in developed economies like China and India, we'll, we'll start to see that happening quickly. Um, m- maybe it'll be a bit slower in the sort of uh, US, North American, uh, Western European economies. But I think there'll be early adoption of 
that those simple scientific decisions that, that follow almost the classic Boolean logic that you know engineers will look at and go, yeah. yeah, if I can fix it using Boolean decision trees, then it'll AI very well. I'm just so glad that you mentioned the UK tax office uh, being uh, that you are from the UK and your extensive knowledge of Europe. Let's talk about this little minuscule thing. You know, no one really has heard of it, of GDPR, right? No one's heard of that. Right, yes. Right. Very ne- small never thing. Never been mentioned. Yes, never yeah. been mentioned. No one's ever really paid attention to it. It's not huge. a thing. Not, not a, a big thing deal. at all. How's that going? Love to get your thoughts on that. But are you seeing this as being any type of hindrance for accelerating advanced analytics or our ability to become more autonomous with AI? Yeah. That is such a good question. The, the concepts behind GDPR, I've I, I got to tell you, I, I, I'm really absolutely supporting. I really like the idea that people should be able to take some sort of control and there should be some sort of an externally enforced governance around what happens with data and whether an AI can grab it and start to make inferences on that. I think you have a right to be able to say, I, I want to see how you got there, and I want to see what you're saying about me, what you're doing about me, etc. Um, and I, I don't know which college you guys went to, but I, I remember one of my professors, actually professor of statistics, um, and he, his phrase, it, 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 we, we used to, obviously, again, being British, when sitting in the pub, it, it, you know, if you wanted to say that you'd been in one of Roger's lectures, you started by saying, show your workings. And show your workings became a little phrase at college amongst my course. Um, but I, I, I like the concept of being able to say to large organizations that may be using AI, you know, kind of good to show your workings before. And we talked about this earlier. You, you get the AI making some decisions that you, know, you, 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 you might not. You, you, you might not want to give it complete autonomy here. You know, you might need something to be able to be outside of that to go slow down stop think whatever it might be um on the other hand i was i don't know about you guys but when um our friendly facebook founder was sitting in front of the senators i I just began to despair at legislators who just didn't seem to understand anything about technology And, and that worries me that gdpr may have been put together by people who really don't they actually think email is new and something somebody else does. And uh, I was at a meetup recently where, where that awful moment that the, the guy wraps it up and says, hey, we're going to do this, keep in touch that way, that way. And if you're old school, there's an email address. And I'm kind of sitting at the back with my hand up going, I am the old school guy. <laughs> you can communicate without email. Email now old school. <laughs> 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 I felt like I felt like the only cool hipster way to talk to to each other was IRC channels. I thought that was the cool thing. Yeah, that's that got to be it. You know, yeah. I'm sitting there listening to Leonard Skinner, and they're going, "Who?" <laughs> Free bird, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I tell you, I mean, I honestly, in going through your book, I I, I feel like it's a uh, it, it's kind of this this it, it tells a lot of stories and and it has some good you know, inspirational ideas and frankly some you know some thoughts on where we think the future is going. But if you were to sum up like why people should grab the life of AI from Amazon or their local book retailer. What would you, what would you say to people is like the, you know, a couple of good reasons and a couple of good things are going to take away when they, when they get done reading your book. Oh, it's, uh, th- thanks for the opportunity that the, the kind of elevator pitch. And it really is that it's, 
artificial intelligent wave is is not going to go away. I talked about the spinning jenny and the, the, the steam revolution that started the industrial revolution. AI is the new steam. And, and, and that kind of a bit of a strange thing to say, but it's not going away. And the next AI will be the next whatever fuel it will be, electricity, whatever. So you need to grab this book because this is coming come what may. And it is a personal disaster to know nothing about something so important that is not just coming, but actually it's 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 sitting in data centers now. It's it's actually having an impact on your life. You may not know it yet, and it'll become part of your life. And and, and the, the the more comfortable you are with it, the more comfortable you'll be. As I suggested, the the you know next generation of doctors with with the AI on your shoulder, and that will be a good thing. You need to embrace and welcome this. Um, and there's a section about, you know, if if you go crazy and think crazy, would you have an AI embedded in your head? So it would, in effect, give you all these mind maps and memory palaces that Sherlock Holmes alleged to have uh, used. I'd, I'd, I'd buy that now. And I, I can't remember the name of my favorite football team, Striker, particularly when they miss an open goal. Um, I use lots of other words to replace that name, but I, I would love to have an AI that goes, this is the guy, this is what, you know, I, I, this is not going away. You need to embrace what this is about. But to think to an earlier point, what the book talks about is some of the, some of the things you need to look out for. And because this is such a big wave, it, it's on all of us to try and understand a little bit about what the problems might be as well as what the opportunities might be. Because there's no such thing as a one-way street when there's such a big revolution coming. And, and, and it's important not to be swept along by it. Actually, you know, start to direct the flow. Be part of it rather than be a spectator. And the book's going to help you be part of it. That's what it's all about. So, Paul, thank you so much for being on. We, we, I certainly agree with your assessment. The, the book is really a, it's an inspiration of AI and the future that it holds, but also a guidance for how to really take advantage of it, be prepared for it, and educate yourself. So I highly encourage our listeners to check out the book, and uh, we'll certainly put a link in our show notes at bigdatabeard.com so that folks can find uh, how to get a copy of the book themselves. But I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to uh, to have a little fun with you, and and clearly we think you're uh, we're an interesting cat. We wanted to chat with you and and get your perspectives on AI, but we want to get a little bit personal now in a section we call rapid fire. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call rapid fire. Pew, pew. What is the latest book you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Besides your own book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, way ahead of me. I was so hoping you were going to say your book. I had so many follow-ups for that. (laughs) The book by Graham Hogg, former major in the British military intelligence. It's a book called Seeing Around Corners, and it is fantastic. It's it's actually more about building teams. I just recommend it to anyone, uh, whether you're a techie or you're just interested in general business, Seeing Around Corners by Graham Hogg. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll have to check that out. If you have a song to play when you walk on stage, what would it be? Put Your Money on Me by The Struts. Uh, new band, breakthrough year. 
new album, Young and Dangerous, available from all good record stores now. Only good ones, though, not the bad ones. <laughs> oh, no, bad ones won't touch Bad ones, too. <laughs> no, we don't want them. <laughs> what is the piece of technology, personal technology, that is making your life worse? Making my life worse? Spotify. Really? Ah, oh, it just... You said rapid fire. You will not there. live long enough to hear the end of my <laughs> complaints. And yet I love it. Go figure. <laughs> love hate yeah, love well, relationship. Oh, yes. <laughs> just, just so you know, I mean, if you if you are on Spotify, you can actually listen to the Big Data Beard podcast on Spotify. So maybe it'll become your favorite piece of technology. You see, this is why I love it and hate it. Just nuggets like that. It just got better. But I know I'll screw it up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's the algorithm. All right. So moving on. <laughs> What is your biggest personal money pit right now? Oh, uh, I, I, I re- really very recently got rid of it. It was a Land Rover Discovery, and uh, it, it just that that was it, it's it's been very carefully put down. Did it go live on a farm somewhere, or like how did you? Handle I, that? The farm's no. It needs to work if it's on a farm. That's why it's a money pit. It, it, it didn't do what it said on the tin, but great for going up Scottish mountains. You know the, uh, the there was, used to be a joke that that's you know the reason why British didn't manufacture computers because they couldn't make them leak oil. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell Land Rover owners because there is a bunch uh-huh. of oil in the, in the driveway. <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. right. <laughs> you really wouldn't want that on your desk, so that's why you don't buy British computers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so true. What show are you binging on right now? Oh, the Good Place. The Good Place. I haven't heard oh, of that. The Good Place. Yeah. You're the second person that's told me that lately. That's the oh, one that's with Ted Danson and uh, that's the right. what's yeah, her yeah, name? Yeah, Kristen Chenoweth. Is that her name? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. everything about it just kind of, it, it chimes, you know? <laughs> oh, good. And then lastly. And it's got an AI in it. There you go. <laughs> perfect. Perfect plug there. And lastly, where's the next interesting place you were going? Where's the next interesting place I'm going to see? I've just really came back from Rome, which which scores just so high everywhere. Uh, next interesting place I'm going is probably to Pisa in Italy, which sounds like I live in Italy, but I do not. I just I think Pisa is a very interesting place. But for the benefit of my boss, who will listen to this, of course, it's Amsterdam, which is the finest non-capital city in the world. Yeah, it's a fine place for cheese, but not nearly as good for good wine. And exactly, pizza yeah. wins every time. <laughs> it's delightful. Well, I tell you what how how can how can folks besides going out and buying your book? Is there how do we follow you in the social sphere? LinkedIn's the best way to do it. Snippets of the book are always sort of leaked onto LinkedIn, um, and that regular self promotion there. So find me, Paul Brook, at LinkedIn. That that's easy. Um, the book's on Amazon. It's a self published thing. All royalties go to charity, and we were pleased to write a nice little check out to Cancer Research UK and to Berkshire Autistic, and a big shout out to those two fantastic charities that do some fantastic work. So uh, oh, that's awesome. I had no idea. I didn't actually catch that in the notes that this is. A charity work, which makes me now an even bigger fan. And I want to encourage everybody to go out because we are fans of anything we can use our technical and business and day job superpowers to drive good for the rest of humanity. We're a big fan. So thank you for doing that. And, and two, just, I, I, I do encourage folks to go out and check out the book, the life of AI with our guest, Paul Brook. It talks about AI today, tomorrow, and in the future and what it's going to mean for humankind. Paul, thanks for joining the big data beard podcast. 
Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.